Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on FUBAR Radio. We're off! We're off! We're off! That's me, <laughs> That's me shouting over Natalie to make sure that she knows that we are off. Also, um, what we're just saying is probably libelous, so we should draw a veil. Well, um, have you got any pens? <laughs> <laughs> yes! Oh, oh, come on! We are right off! That is number one on my top five list of uh, jokes that we do on Fan Club. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, how, um, how is how's list off going? It's good, yeah, 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 it's good. Uh, it feels like we've done... I mean, we're, we're desperately trying to do one a week, mm. even though it's, uh, you know, it's difficult. And I think it will be... Why, why is it difficult? Just sort of always difficult to find time. This is easier because we have a set time, I think. So every yeah, well, why, uh, you have, why haven't you learned from this and applied it to your? Well, as, I, as I'm saying it out loud, it's occurred to me. Do you know what we should do? <laughs> we should just have a set time. Yeah. Rather than just let it drift and then go. Oh, they do no one. They do no one now. What you, what you could do is you could do it uh, Wednesdays at uh, four thirty. Could do, and then it'd be then it that'd be my uh, day for doing uh, podcast recordings. Uh, or you could uh, list do off, list off. I'm saying this, it sounds like I'm publicising it, but Natalie has pointed out I should say what it is, because Listoff is a uh, podcast to do with my friend Ozzy, where we list top five things, and it can be basically any anything, absolutely anything. And we have to come up with five of our favourite examples of that thing. Um, so I th- have I met Ozzy? You have met him a couple of times at things like my birthday and things like that. I feel like I've met Ozzy. But then I don't recognise him on the picture. So I'm just sort of like, I I know I've met him. I know I have, but um, but yeah. Anyway, that's not like, I'm not being rude. What is that? I just found... The longest. Oh, it's not mine. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I was going to say it's probably not yours. <laughs> I thought it was a great. I thought it was one of my grey hairs, but it wasn't. It was uh, <laughs> anyway. So anyway, so uh, right. So yeah, every week you could also do it at twelve, couldn't you, on a Wednesday? Yeah, at twelve. Uh, record it. Yeah, and then you've done it, and then and then how long does it take to record? An hour and a half. About an hour and a half. Yeah, they're usually about an hour twenty. We've worked out where we tend to be. For some yeah, reason, they're always almost exactly the same time every week. And then grab a snack and then come back and do phone club. I know. That's, As I'm saying just, this out loud, it does make sense to just... That's just what I would do. I would schedule it so that you're all doing it all in one go. Um, and that way, you know, you can spend the rest of the week, you know, your time. Just <laughs> what you want. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why we started. <laughs> Welcome to Fan Club. <laughs> so that's uh, this is you're listening to Fubar Radio, and we are fucked up beyond all recognition. <laughs> this is Fan Club, where you want fucked up, we'll give you fucked up. We're gonna list all of the Police Academy films in the order that we saw them, and then the order of preference. Yeah, uh, me. Get used it to it. Four. It was you four, can't handle two, that. three, six, five, seven, one. 
You saw yeah, one last. Also, no, no, I was okay. just uh, I was just doing random numbers. It was just a bit. It was a bit of a skit more than anything. But uh, we, we all listening to Free Bar Radio. We are fucked up beyond all recognition. So anyway, um, what John Carpenter films have you seen this week? <laughs> Whoa, fucked up. That is so fucked up, man. Um, so, uh, my name is Nick Helm. Uh, as if I needed any introduction, uh, but you might need a little bit of help. Not on the tip of your tongue. Not on the tip of your tongue. Uh, but, uh, give it another look. No, it's not. It's not who you thought it might be. It is, in fact, Nathaniel Metcalf. Hello. It's, it's Nathaniel Metcalf. Hello. Um, and you're, what's the first rule of fan club? Tell your friends about fan club. Second rule of fan club. Please just tell. Just tell them. Well, the don't love, keep a love don't mate. keep a good secret to yourself. That's what I always say. Um, uh, do we have any statistics on where we are in any charts this week? No, it doesn't look like it. it doesn't look like we do, which suggests either Natalie hasn't checked, or as I suspected, we're not charting this week in any territory. Or, or, or we're doing so well that uh, we probably don't need to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. So now, wherever you are in the world, I mean, we can't tell you to listen if you're nowhere in the world. Is anyone? That's my point. They're listening. Don't worry. And guys, let me be the first to say, thanks for listening. (laughs) And by first, I mean ever. (laughs) So... (laughs) Um, how, how are you? I've forgotten how to do this. <laughs> I know, I'm quite enjoying it. Is that what we're doing? It. Uh, you say, that, What have I been a fan how, of this How week? are you? How are you? Oh, I'm all right. Hey, Nathaniel. Mm-hmm. Hey, Nathaniel, I've yeah. got a question. Yeah. What have you been a fan of this week? Good question. Uh, I'll tell you what, I did see. Well, Richard, Richard, Richard Donner died yesterday, he or the day before. Die. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is sad. I didn't realize he was ninety-one. Ninety-one. Uh, I, I didn't realize he was ninety-one. Of course, when you find that out, it does make perfect sense. Of course, it does. When you have to, when you go back, but when you hear it, you go, "That's crazy." And then you because he didn't oh, no. look. He didn't... He didn't look like a teenager when he was directing <laughs> Superman in those behind-the-scenes shots from <laughs> 1978 or whenever it was. Is it seventy-eight or seventy-nine? Uh, 78. Yes. Uh, of course, Alien was 79. <laughs> um, <laughs> Star Wars 77, Jaws 75. So, of course. Um, but um, Poltergeist 81. So, um, but yeah, he, he of course he was 91. But, and also he hasn't made a film for like a very long time. Yeah. Um, and I'm always really surprised where, when I, I look up. I thought Lethal Weapon 4 was a belated sequel, you know. Yeah. By that I mean like 10 years later. So when was Lethal Weapon 3? 92, 93? I think it was that it was 92 and I reckon, <clears throat> yeah, what year is Lethal Weapon 4 going to be? I think it's 97. And, I like too uh, bad, it, 97, no, I think it was 98 actually. Batman and Robin and Lost World was 97. I think it was the year after. But it feels like... 
I always thought it was in the 2000s, like they had to be dragged back out yeah. of retirement and foster. But it was, and so when I, because I hadn't seen, I think I've seen bits of Lethal Weapon 4, but not all, it's, it's not a good film. But um, I, uh, I, I think really Lethal Weapon is you've got one and you've got two sort of, and that's it really. I, 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 I remember three and I like three and um, I like three and um, uh, I've always remembered the bad guy from three, which is a sign of a fairly good bad guy. Who is the bad um, guy? Uh, he's the same guy that plays the bad guy in Mask of Zorro. Um, uh, and he plays a Mexican in uh, Mask of Zorro. Ah. So it's a little bit problematic uh, <laughs> when you look at it through modern eyes. But um, um, yeah, I can't remember his name. Is it like Joseph Gans? Or is that the name of... That might be the name of some sort of... Anyway, guard from... Anyway, let's carry on. <laughs> um, it's, uh, can we look up the bad... Oh, look, she's done it. Oh, wow. Not charting this week. Oh, that's not quite what I was wanting to know. Um, you could have lied to us. Uh, who is the, what is the name of the guy who plays the bad guy in Mask of Sorrow? Or is it Mark of... Mark of Sorrow is the sequel, right? Yes. Mask of Sorrow and Lisa Weapon 3. Anyway, anyway, anyway. It's easy to forget. Richard Donner. I, Superman is a film that I brush over. I don't, I don't rewatch it. That's Stuart Wilson. Stuart Wilson? Fuck off is his name, Stuart Wilson. Um, so um, he's got a, a moustache and he looks like a very boring kind of like, like middle-aged kind of guy. And he's the bad guy. They have these armour-piercing bullets that... Um, that they're using in Lethal Weapon 3. But it's kind of like, so Superman is a film that um, obviously I grew up with, I think Superman's biggest contribution to me is uh, Christopher Reeve. And when I was little, those first three films, I think, what, Superman 4 came out in 87 or something. Yeah. And I think um, I was sort of grown... Um, I was aware of what... I didn't go and see Superman 4 at the cinema. I remember there being some sort of uh, display. There was a flying car with Superman. and Well, Superman was lifting up a car in Hamleys or in, right. in some sort of shop window in London. Maybe it was the toy shop. What's that one? That is uh, Hamleys. Selfridges? That's Hamleys. Oh, but I think it might have been Self Selfridges. Oh, maybe. Okay. Um, so, so there was one of those big shops in London and I think my mum took us to look through the window um, and uh, there was the car with Gene Hetman and John Cryer in it and Christopher Reeve as Superman sort of like flying it off. Uh, I guess they were free that morning. Uh, so good for them for rolling their sleeves up and mucking in. <laughs> but um, I, didn't, I, I, I still don't think I've seen all of Superman 4 all the way through. But the first three... Uh, are all sort of like moulded together in a way. Um, and uh, so the first one, I have seen it. The music's obviously iconic. And, you know, there's so much great about Superman, but when it actually comes to sitting down and watching Superman, I'm kind of a little bit like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, no, I think Superman is like, I think it's a frustrating film because it's, I think it really stands up the whole thing. And it's so close to being like just about perfect apart from the kind of going back in time the sort of fake ending they put on it 
and that's like the worst bit about it. You go, ah, oh, it's such a shame. Everything else, I think, is perfect up to that point. All the I don't mind that. I think are spot on. Yeah, yeah. The, the performance is incredible. Um, Margaret Kidder, you know, the guy that plays Perry White, like everyone is great in that, right? Uh, who's the guy that plays Jimmy Olsen? He's Please, Mark great. McClure. I thought he was such a huge star. So did I. You know? And then you go, <laughs> oh, he was in those. He was in Amazon Women on the Moon. And then years later, he plays one character in Joss Whedon's Justice League and another character in uh, Zack Snyder's Justice League. And he's in, the um, um, thing is, he's in Back to the Future. So because he's in these big course, movies, yes. you think like, oh, that guy, he's huge. How did they get him? Um, <laughs> and he's yeah, like, it's like, it's like, he hasn't done anything else. That's the it. career, the career-making performance of Jimmy Olsen, and then <laughs> Martin McFly's nameless brother. <laughs> and, Seven years later, and then in the Russ Meyer sequence in Amazon Women on the Moon, and then that is it. <laughs> but like, but uh, as a kid, I thought, "Fucking hell, this guy! This is like the Expendables." They've got all of these guys. Uh, they've got, but you know, when you watch Superman one as a kid, you go, "Can't believe it!" They've got. They've got all of these guys from Superman 2 in it. It's amazing. <laughs> How do they get them? Um, and, um, but yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Do you know what? The, it's the beginning bit with um, uh, when they do kind of like the, the origin story when yeah. it's not Christopher Reeve and it's this kid wearing this wig. Yes. And he, goes, he doesn't look young enough for it not to be played by Christopher Reeve. Exactly. This guy looks no younger than Christopher Reeve does. Did you see and The he- Haunting of Phil House? No, no, I started watching it. They, it I, I think it was really good, except for it falls apart in the last episode. They got Henry Thomas to play a young version of Timothy Hutton. And you go, there's like seven <laughs> years difference. It's like, there's no difference. Like, just age Timothy Hutton up or age uh, Henry Thomas up, right? But, but don't have two guys that don't really look that much like each other having played in age groups, you know? But um, yeah, it was the origin bit where it's not Christopher Reeve and you're kind of getting Chris off when he gets to Metropolis. The beginning with Marlon Brando is great. And then when he gets to Metropolis, that's great. And all the stuff in Smallville is a little bit like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and sort of like, it really comes alive when Ned Beatty and uh, Gene Hackman show up and you kind of like, great, right. So I, I obviously, you know, I would say Superman is a five-star, you know, uh, gold standard movie it's up there with uh, Star Wars Back to the Future all those films it's just a film that I don't you know I don't particularly uh, enjoy getting through right and I can watch Back to the Future anytime I can watch Star Wars or Empire Strikes Back anytime and Superman feels like it's a little bit of like it feels like it is setting up a franchise or setting up a story it feels like there's a lot of setup. um to get that out of the way in order for them to have made like a bunch of films. Whereas Back to the Future feels like self-contained. Star Wars feels self-contained. Um, although I guess, I guess if you have any complaints about Star Wars, knowing now what you, you know, um, whatever the phrase is, if you knew then what you know now, is that there is a lot of setup with Luke Skywalker on Tatooine, standing in the sand, looking at stuff. But then again, those I, last time I saw Star Wars and Luke Skywalker looking up at the twin uh, suns, you know, it's, and with the music, it's sort of that can that can 
bring not me i'm not saying me but that can that can bring like a grown a grown man or woman uh to tears um but not i didn't but like, i imagine that you could cry if you're like in a vulnerable place you know mentally um so uh so superman deserves to be amongst all those things but for me it's not like it's, it doesn't have to rewatch. that so even something like superman 3 has where it's like let's cut the bullshit and get straight to it um and um but okay, so i'm I'm going off on a tangent, but what I really want to say is like, so you've got Superman, which is a film that I subconsciously sort of dismiss. It's never out of all the Supermen, even though the others are far more flawed, it's not the one that I go to. And then you've got The Omen, which I think is great. And it's kind of like you got, there was The Exorcist, which was like, there's, uh, you know, it's a horror movie that is trying to be kind of fairly realistic that is dealing with um a catholic priest fighting satan right but it's sort of like this 70s um you know uh new hollywood kind of approach to it where it's sort of gritty and real and then based of that that was success that richard Donner made the omen and then the omen is kind of like it, you know, it ended up to be the first in a franchise, which I think is actually the Omen franchise is actually a really good franchise. But the Omen, it's kind of like feels like a popcorn. It's mm. like a middle. It's like a middleman between it being an all-out exploitative popcorn movie and it being, you know, it's got one foot in The Exorcist and one foot in something else, right? Jaws. Well, it does. I think it's and it's also got one foot in, like, Hammer Horror. It has that sort of, it's all yeah. those kind of British actors, but doing it almost <laughs> like, this is what Hammer should have done in the 70s. They should have tried to move with the times a bit. It really does feel like it, it, it almost acknowledges that stuff, but yeah. does it in a sort of 70s way. Whereas The Exorcist feels like something else entirely. That's why... The Exorcist feels like, it feels like one of them New York movies, like a yeah. Scorsese or, exactly. you know, and it's like, and, um, uh, and it feels, it, it feels so sort of gritty and real. There's no, I, I, even though there's ridiculous stuff that happens in The Exorcist, it's not a fun film, you know, and it's mm. not trying to be a fun film. Whereas The Omen has these ridiculous kind of like deaths and it's almost like Final Destination in a way where you're waiting for this thing to happen. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Um, and uh, yeah, I think The Omen is this, is this great film. But again, it's not this film that I revisit loads. Um, and then uh, the Goonies, I never got on with the Goonies. Um, mm. I loved got... it as a kid, but it's just, and I've never, I don't think I've seen it as an adult, but I, like my brain is like going, nah, I don't, don't watch that anymore. Do you know what I mean? I don't well, want I... to watch it. I remember enjoying well, it a lot. I hated it as a kid because I used to get bullied at school. I was overweight. And if it was on, on like a Saturday on Monday, they'd all sort of um, bully me with Goonies stuff and I was like oh right so I really hated it um and then I also also like when I was a kid my dream was to be Indiana Jones it wasn't to be like another kid that was pretending to be Indiana Jones it will you know I didn't need to see another kid you know and I didn't want to be which one was he which one does the truffle shuffle Uh, 
chunk i did not want to be chunk mm. so um so i didn't want to do you know what i mean it was just like i don't want to be part of the goonies gang yeah. i don't want to i think lost boys was meant to be like the goonies wasn't it they were all yeah, meant yeah. to be the goonies age and then they aged them up a bit um so so the good and then what was the and then lethal weapon and then and lethal weapon absolutely like before die hard uh lethal weapon kind of set the blueprint of how you do an action film you get mismatched yeah. buddy cops and they and so I, I wrote a post on instagram and um and you know, it's easy to just sort of like look at that and then he did lady hawk and um i really loved assassins when i saw it at the cinema i went i think i can't remember if i went by myself or not but it was one of those films where stallone versus banderas and i was very naive at the time and i honestly didn't know which way it was going to go you know it's two <laughs> fighting each other and i was yeah, like, oh, I'm just... I, like I, I remember yeah i went to see assassins at the cinema and i don't think it was a big deal but it was a big deal when i saw it do you know what i mean i remember really looking forward to it it's almost like I, oh they've got the guy from desperado and the guy uh yeah it's 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 and stallone in a movie brilliant amazing i think but but also what people what people don't realize right is that growing up through the 80s stallone was kind of a big deal but I never watched any Stallone films and I Rambo was like an 18 or Rambo two and Rambo three were 18s. And so in the video shop, there was kind of like this aura of fear around them. Just like that's an 18. Mm. So imagine the things that you will see in that film. They will, you know, they will haunt you forever. If you see these 18 certificate Stallone films, by the time you get to the nineties where he was sort of like staging his comeback, where he just sort of like, uh, he'd done Stop On My Mum or Shoot at the beginning of the 90s and Oscar, which sort of like ended his career for a bit. And then he was just, he picked himself up and he did Cliffhanger, Demolition Man in 1993. And then every year he would do a film. And it was like every year, unlike Schwarzenegger, who, who would do like a tentpole every two years or so, and Bruce Willis wasn't ever in the same league uh, if he wasn't doing a Die Hard, mm. then, um, then you'd have... Um, and Bruce Willis was doing other stuff like 12 Monkeys, where he was doing proper acting. Whereas if you wanted like wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, uh, bang for your bucks entertainment, then you'd have like Stallone or Schwarzenegger. And then if you were really desperate, you know, there'd be an executive decision or something every so often and you go, oh God, well, it's all right. He dies near the beginning. Um, <laughs> so... So if you look at Stallone, you'd have like a new one every every summer, or you know. And so there was Cliffhanger, Demolition Man, um, Assassins, Judge Dredd, The Specialist, Daylight. You know, and they were like every year he'd come along and it'd be. And I used to fucking absolutely love those Stallone movies because I was always a Schwarzenegger fan. Mm. But in the nineties. I could always go to the cinema and watch the Stallone film. It's, it's true. Like for me, those, because there was something illicit about those movies. Yeah, that were like 18s. I, I, I think I caught them all when they kind of started appearing on TV. But like when they were like videos, it was like I wasn't allowed to watch those movies. But when I was like 13, 14, it's like they started making, I guess, more mainstream movies that were suddenly just much more accessible to all ages. I mean, Lethal Weapon's a good example. Lethal Weapon's an 18. That was a film that I remember growing up and being a bit like, can't wait till I'm old enough to watch Lethal Weapon. But now it doesn't well, feel Lethal like... A, yeah. With Lethal Weapon 2, there was a bit where there was a bomb on the toilet 
And I re- heard about that in a playground before I saw it. And it sounded terrifying, like absolutely terrifying. So what, he, sit, he sits on the toilet and there's a bomb on it. And then does it blow up? And they go, yeah, it blows up and the toilet smashes through the window and it lands on a police car. And they don't tell me, spoilers, but they didn't tell me that Danny Glover got off the toilet. I just assumed that he died sitting on the toilet. And I was like, that's terrifying. Um, but, you know, it's, I think... It's easy to think. You see all these films. So later, so there was Lady Hawk in the in the eighties. Maverick is oh, I um, love Maverick. It's I think that in my in memory, I love Maverick. I think um, it's got one of the best opening lines to any film ever made. Um, uh, it's you know he's it's he's such a dick. You know because. Mel Gibson was one of the most charismatic, easygoing, most watchable movie stars. You know, he he had like um, he could do. He he was kind of like he had like the appeal of a Bruce Willis, where he's like a he's yeah. in good shape. He's in good shape, but he's not Schwarzenegger, you know. And so he's sort of relatable, and he's he's got a great sense of humour, and he can act. And so there's something about his, I guess his Australianness that gave him a kind of easy charm. So he wasn't kind of he didn't feel like he was from Hollywood. He felt like he was kind of from somewhere else, and he was a bit more easygoing. He has a lot of charm. That's what he he was like. You know, he's he's a charming everyman kind of character in those films yeah in those films in most of the films he made in the 90s mm. and then he made King Theory with John again um and um but Maverick is, is great also it's got like uh Jodie Foster's brilliant in it it's kind of like you think of Jodie Foster as a very serious actress and, you, and and she is and she's great in all those things but at the same time she was so good at light comedy and she's brilliant in Maverick and James Garner's in it, and I love James Garner. He's my favorite. I think James Garner's cooler than Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. I think James Garner is the best. Um, and uh, then you've got James Coburn as well, who's like absolutely fucking... And you've got Graham Greene, who's sort of like doing a like a pastiche on the Dancing with the Wolves character. And then you've got this cameo from Danny Glover, where they have the least weapon music. And I, I think... Maverick is a brilliant film. I think its problem is that it's like it's over long. It outstays its welcome a little bit. Um, but I thought it was a great film. And um, but it's easy to just sort of like go, well, Richard Donner, what did he do? And then you look back and you go, he did, uh, he did an entry in most, you know. So The Omen, he kind of like The Exorcist could have been a one-off, but when he did The Omen, it was like, no, you can make something that is more commercial and more entertaining and more fun than The Exorcist uh, for a wider appeal. Mm. Um, and it's still creepy. So he, so he nailed, like, like, he was the first person after The Exorcist, in a way, to say, uh, we'll take The Exorcist and we'll do something else with it, right? Yeah. And so he made The Omen, right? And then you go, right, what, what else? He did Superman, which is the first serious proper superhero movie and that is all we get in cinemas really yeah like 90 80 90 percent of all blockbusters are superhero movies and it's largely thanks to richard donner showing people that they could do it and for some reason there was four superman films but it took 10 years to get around to batman 
you know, and then they were like, you know, and then it took another 10 years to get to X-Men and Spider-Man. And so it's just kind of like, why was it so slow? when <laughs> the blueprint is still the same. It's Superman is what they use. And then you go, right, Goonies was an adventure film. It was a kid's movie. It was uh, the Spielberg film that Spielberg didn't direct, you know, aside from um, Poltergeist. It, and it's kind of like... Um, Again, he sort of like absolutely defined what a kid's film was. And then you have Lethal Weapon, where you look at Fast and the Furious now, and it's about people that, you know, hate each other, but are forced to work with each other. You look at Hobbs and Shaw, you look at Vin Diesel and Paul Walker in the first one. That is, the, you know, all the Rush yeah, Hour right. movies. It's all like it's, what he's doing is it's, it's like um, he's taking the movies and making A movies out of them. He's defining genres, you know, mm. like if it wasn't a diehard clone where it's like under siege, Steven Seagal's on a boat. Yeah, it was it, it was a uh, fucking um, it was a lethal weapon clone. Which are all like, like those oh. 70s buddy cop movies, Freebie and the Bean and all that kind of stuff. But done you instead got, of doing it like low budget, you do like, yeah, right. Do it big budget version of it. Yeah. Do the A movie yeah. version of it for a mainstream audience. Yeah, and then after that, you've got like Red Heat, where you have a Russian and an American, and you have Turner and Hooch, where you have like Tom Hanks and a. Um, <laughs> you got Red Heat, where you got a Russian and Jim Belushi. You've got K9, where you got a dog and Jim Belushi. But. <laughs> Filofax, where you've got a Filofax and Jim Belushi. Um, you know, it's weird, isn't it, when they made Blues Brothers 2000 that they didn't ask Jim Belushi, right? Is he in it? Yeah, I think he's in it. Never seen it. I'm pretty sure he's, he's in John it, though, right? They got John Goodman as the John Belushi replacement. You got Jim Belushi, right? Don't you own a bar with him? Was he not available? Couldn't you have changed shooting dates? What? What? I thought um, he was in it. I've never seen it. I dream I've never seen it, it. Really. Uh, to be fair, I've never seen it. It no, might be worth watching just for sort of like the Aretha Franklin bits and stuff like that. But um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, anyway, the point is that you look, you, you think, well, what is, what did Richard John Donner do? And you think like, well, the, he did the Lethal Weapon films. And you think, well, so he was an action guy, was he? And you go, well, he did The Omen. And you go, oh, so he did horror. And you go, yeah, but he also did Superman. But he invented the superhero movie, like the structure, the the origin story. Yeah, yeah, but he also uh, uh, he also did Ladyhawk. So what, he did fantasy, but he did The Goonies. So he did kids. Uh, well, not like that. <laughs> and then he did uh, he did Maverick. What, well, he did fucking, he did a Western, right? And it was, but it, was, it wasn't just a Western. It was a spin-off from an old TV mm. series, which sort of gave, paid tribute to the TV series whilst being its own thing, yeah. you know? Um, he nailed absolutely everything, and and his. I, I don't think. I think you think of George Lucas, you think of Steven Spielberg, but when you look at the films that are out at the moment, you know the films that come back every year. I would say, arguably, once you get over the spectacle of uh, Spielberg and the, the set pieces, I, I would say he's probably one of the most influential uh, directors. Yeah, when, that when ever, we talk about ever him lived. that way, it's really surprising we don't talk about him in the same breath as those. Because he's successful, super successful, and he kind of did what those guys did and kind of kind of at the same time, but he doesn't feel like he's part of that gang. And yet he, well, did, I, it, he did it totally. I, 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 I say what, you know, it's kind of like with Jaws... Spielberg made Jaws. We've got to play a song in a minute, mm. but we can we can talk about this for another half an hour, can't we? When um, when Spielberg did Jaws, um, 
there were loads of Jaws knockoffs, but none of them, even the sequels, none of them had any of the magic that was Spielberg at that time. Hmm. So Jaws is elevated by the fact that it's Steven Spielberg. Whereas Richard Donner was, was in retrospect, and it wasn't until he died and I sort of like looked at his stuff and you look at his body, because I'm not walking around every day thinking about Richard Donner. No. And then all of a sudden he dies and then you look at his body of work and you go, oh my God, like I've never thought about it like this. But he nailed every genre and every, every film that he basically made, he didn't make tons, but the big ones that he made in the, in the first two thirds of his career, went on to define what everyone else would do with that genre afterwards. And it's kind of like you have Spielberg, who is Steven Spielberg. And he's like this magic elf that's turned up and he's made this film and no one can replicate what he does. But Richard Donner has kind of like gone, I've done it. These are the blueprints. All you need to do is watch that film and you can do it too. And it's kind of like you watch Lethal Weapon. There were so many clones from Lethal Weapon and some of them are as good as Lethal Weapon. And some of the sequels, well, I enjoy Lethal Weapon 2 as well. It's not as good as Lethal Weapon, but there are moments in it that are just as memorable and the third one. And it's kind of like, you go, yeah, so, so Richard Donner kind of like made Superman and goes, this is how you do it. And then other people went like, great, he's cracked it. Let's just do that. And then with Lethal Weapon, it's like, this is how you do it. And with, um, you know, the, the Exorcist, he was just like, I'm trying to work out how to make that commercial. Because Exodus was a big hit, but it was at the end of, um, you know, the. it was at a point where the studios were taking back control over kind of like uh, the, the, the maverick film directors of the 60s, 70s. Studios were taking back control and sort of Richard Donner came along and he made this big, I mean, that's the difference, isn't it? I think Exorcist is almost yes. an art house picture and The Omen is a studio movie. Yeah. And he was sort of like, he came along and he made these studio movies and he showed people how to do it. He was just great at it. Um, uh, well, let's keep talking. Um, uh, let's play a song. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. we're back we're back we are talking about (laughs) (laughs) we've talked about Richard Donner for about 25 minutes now um so uh, on top of that so he I've never so I I did a post about Richard Donner and I said well he did the omen he did superman he did the goonies and I'm not a fan of goonies at all right Mm -hmm. And uh, and he did. Luther. I can still appreciate the fact that I like the idea of Goonies. It's just so sort of like tied in with like a miserable time that I had. But um, so he did. He did Goonies and he did Lethal Weapon. For those are his four big ones, right? Maybe the reason we don't think about Richard Donner so much, having said what I said before the song, is that um, there were so many knockoffs afterwards. And you kind of like go, and sequels, do you know what I mean? And it's kind of like, if you're going to watch, if you're going to watch a Superman film, do you watch Superman where it's half of it is set up and getting to know people? Like with Star Wars, it's like what, which if I was to watch any Star Wars film out of the two and a half Star Wars films that I love, 
uh, it would always be Empire Strikes Back because it's right in the middle of the story. You're not, you're not one by one introducing all the characters. They're all there, right? So, and I think that maybe that's the, that's the thing where you kind of like, he did all of these incredible things that had never been done before. Hmm. Um, I think you've already but, held it though. I suspect it's because he's probably not appreciated because he worked very much in the mainstream in a way that the others felt like they were breaking into Hollywood. He feels like he's kind of part of it. He's kind of part of like the, the system. He doesn't feel like he's someone who's breaking in. In person. Even Spielberg followed up Jaws with Close Encounters, you know, and Close Encounters was an incredibly personal film and Jaws was an incredibly personal film. And when you look at all of Spielberg's films, but we haven't done that with Richard Donner, you know, mm. but when you look at all of Steven Spielberg's films, even though he's made a film about a shark and he's made a film about a, an alien, there's all of these things he's put in there about the family unit and uh, relationships with your dad. Uh, you know, there's all of this stuff and about divorce. And it's in all of his films uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. And you kind of like go, yeah, they're very, he, he found a way of making uh, a film about a shark into like a very personal, a studio film about a shark based on a book into a film that was really personal to Steven Spielberg, you know? And I don't know if you look at all of the Richard Donner stuff that you go, he was making, uh, he was smuggling in personal little indie movies into huge uh, studio movies. But um, yeah, so I put on the post that he made those four films, uh, Lethal Weapon, Coonies, Superman, and uh, what's the other one, The Omen? And then I also said, and I was also a massive fan of Scrooged, which I somehow watch every year. It's not a perfect film, but I'll watch Scrooged every year. For no, Christmas. I know lots of people that don't like it. I really like Scrooged. I find it, I think it's really funny. I think it's kind of, it's one of my favourite versions. I mean, it's hard to do a bad version of it now, I think, Christmas Carol, but I do love it. I do, I do really love it. Can't I don't, I don't love it. And I think I remember watching it when it came out on video um how we'll come back to this so yeah. so there was there was maverick scrooge and assassins as um i loved maverick and i only ever watched that on video um i i grew grew up it's a sta it's a christmas staple is um uh scrooge and assassins was one of the first kind of like um movies that i went unaccompanied I think, mm. or maybe I was 15 and it was a 15 and I was going to the cinema to watch sort of like the sort of movies that I would have to sneak around my mate's house and watch, um, while he was out. And, <laughs> um, uh, so, so those were, f and then somebody wrote in and said, and Lady Hawk, don't forget Lady Hawk. And it's like, well, it'd be disingenuous of me to include Lady Hawk because it's in my list. Yeah. Then you're, what you want to do is you want to do a post about Richard Donner and you need to talk about how much you love Lady Hawk. I've never sat all the way through Lady Hawk. And um, it's kind of like one of them real worldy uh, fantasy romances, which, you know, never really appealed to me when I was right. growing up because it wasn't legend and legend is the weaker film, I imagine. Yeah. But, but yeah. it had all those visuals in it that kind of got you through, you know? I regularly think to myself, I don't think I've ever seen Lady Hawk, and I regularly think to myself, oh, I should sit down and watch Lady Hawk, but I'm aware that I've had that thought for 10 or 15 years. 
yeah. know what I mean? I've gone like, I should sit down watch that at some point. Yeah, I should probably it's like, sit down and give that a go. In a world where I've never seen Lady Hawk all the way through, uh, it's kind of like, there's got to be a reason why I haven't. It just doesn't mm. appear. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. the Fast and Furious in a way. It's just like, oh, although I'd rather see it than those. Um, it's just kind of like, it just doesn't. It's something about a pre-Ferris Bueller Matthew Broderick. And there's something about a post-Ferris Bueller Matthew Broderick <laughs> as well. It's something about Ferris Bueller and that's it. Uh, maybe election. But like, do you know what I mean? It's kind of, I don't know. So, so yeah, so... So if you if you're thinking about whatever your favourite Richard Donner movie is, so Scrooged, mm-hmm. um, I think Scrooge came out at a time when I was obsessed with. So it came out in eighty nine, right? Eighty nine, I believe. Yeah. So that was the same year as uh, Ghostbusters two. Mm-hmm. Same year as uh, Batman, Lethal Weapon two. Um, oh fuck! Did he do Lethal Weapon two and Scrooge in the same year? So he had a horrible time. Yeah, maybe Scrooge horrible time was Scrooge. 88. Yeah, maybe. It was I think I think Scrooge was before yeah, because it was. Wasn't it a thing? Wasn't the marketing was so basically? Bill Murray made Ghostbusters, and he made uh, part of his part of his deal with making Ghostbusters was that um, he was big off Saturday Night Live. He'd done Meatballs. He'd done Stripes. Uh, he made, um, now which one was the, his film? He made R- Razor's Edge and Where the Buffalo Roam. Where the Buffalo Roam. So is Buffalo Roam his? And in his in what way? He's in it. He's, he's, he's the one that produced it. Yeah, I think so. That's the... Um... So he was, so is it Razor's Edge? Which one is the one where he's Hunter S. Thompson? That's Where the Buffalo Roam. So I think it was Razor's Edge then, wasn't it? Or maybe it was Where the Buffalo... Basically, he oh, yeah, gets, Yes, thing. no, I think you're right. I think Razor's Edge is the one that he made, yeah, off the back of... So, so when he was... when So when he was doing... Um, they were asking... You know, Ghostbusters was written for John Belushi. John Belushi died, and then they needed to replace John Belushi. Um, and if you didn't know any of this, you know, Dan Aykroyd wrote the character of Slimer in Ghostbusters as um, a tribute to John Belushi. So when you see Slimer for the first time, he's uh, eating loads of food and he's drinking loads of alcohol and it's all passing through him when he's in the hotel. And basically it's sort of meant to be John Belushi from Animal House. Um, And uh, so they got Bill Murray to replace him. And Bill Murray was just like, I don't want to make Ghostbusters. I want to make Razor's Edge. Mm -hmm. It's like a Somerset Maugham kind of adaptation, isn't it, or something? And they were like going, great. Well, and I think Dan Aykroyd said, well, this is how you get Razor's Edge made. And now it might be Buffalo Rome, but I think it's Razor's Edge. This is how you get Razor's Edge made, Bill. You sign up for Ghostbusters and you say you'll only do Ghostbusters if you also get to make Razor's Edge. And Bill Murray said, great. But Bill Murray was like, I know these fuckers. They won't let me make Razor's Edge once I've made Ghostbusters. So he said, I will only make Ghostbusters if you let me make Razor's Edge first. So Bill Murray goes up, he makes Razor's Edge. And obviously it's before cell phones, but it's before, you know, he just goes off into the fucking middle of nowhere and disappears off the face of the planet, makes this film. No one can get in contact with him. No one can get the script to him. And they all just assume that Bill Murray's not going to do Ghostbusters because, you know, they're hoping he's going to turn up, but they're just like, well, he hasn't, he's not going to, we haven't heard from him. So Bill Murray, um, 
locks himself in the edit. He edits the first uh, the first cut of Razor's Edge. And once he's happy that the film is sort of like in progress, he turns up on the set of Ghostbusters. He hasn't read the script. He thinks Ghostbusters is going to be a part of shit. And um, he makes Ghostbusters. And then halfway through making Ghostbusters, he realizes that Ghostbusters is not only going to be good, but is going to be uh, do mega business. And all the way through the first half, he's sort of like being really disparaging, lazy. Um, he can't be bothered to sort of like join in with everyone. And then because they filmed it in New York as well, and they were huge megastars in New York because of Saturday Night Live, whenever they've got a break in filming, everyone's asking for their autographs and they're wearing the Ghostbusters uniforms and there's Ecto-1 and Ghostbusters is basically marketing itself while they're making it and they're megastars just walking around New York and everyone's sort of like bombarding them and then Bill Murray goes ah this is going to be great and then halfway through filming Ghostbusters he suddenly turns up for work every day and kicks in and then he be, it, it, he creates this you know um, he was a popular comedian and then he becomes a megastar and then based on the success of Ghostbusters he can't go anywhere and he hates it so he moves to France with his family and disappears in France and he goes away for a few years and he didn't make any other films in the eighties. And then he, ca- I think he did the cameo in little shop of horrors. Because mm. so everyone loves Rick Moranis. Um, and Frank Oz. And, um, and I think um, it's this, and John Candy was in it and it was kind of like all good people, Steve Martin, all Saturday night live or the, um, what was the Canadian equivalent of that? Oh yeah. That's SNTV. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think I maybe made up a couple of letters there, but you get the gist. Um, uh, And so he comes and does a cameo for that, but he hasn't, as a kid growing up in video shops, I just assumed that Bill Murray had done fucking loads and loads of stuff. And when you look back on it, it's like Al Pacino. He made like six films in the 80s. And then when he did Groundhog Day, which was uh, Groundhog Day and What About Bob, which was sort of like his comeback movies, you kind of go, well, these are his comeback movies. But they were comeback movies from like Ghostbusters, which was huge, Little Shop of Horrors, which everybody loved. And then he did Scrooge. And when Scrooge was there, they marketed the fuck out of it. Like, this is Bill Murray. Bill Murray is back. And he's brought some ghosts with him. And it's like, what, Christmas? It's a Christmas carol, right? Mm. But they're marketing it off it. No, it's not Dickens. It's not a Christmas carol. This is like an unofficial sequel to Ghostbusters. It's Bill Murray and Ghosts. What more could you want? And we've got them. Um, and uh, yeah, he had a horrible time making Scrooge with Richard Donner. Richard Donner hated making Scrooge mm-hmm. with Bill Murray. And then he made Ghostbusters 2, which he hated as well. And then he went into the 90s where he kind of did a couple of good films and then some really weird stuff like mm-hmm. Larger Than Life, Osmosis Jones, The Man in Uti Little, uh, which led into car films, Space Jam, like some real. But going back to Richard Donner, so, um, yeah, so he kind of like um, made all of these different films, and when you put them side by side, they're just very. They don't feel like a consistent body of work, no. but then, because you know. It, it, not like in a bad way, but you would just assume that the guy that directed The Omen was a different guy from the guy that directed Scrooge, was mm. a different guy from the guy that directed Lethal Weapon, yeah. from directed Goonies. Goonies is always a big surprise because 
it and although it's not it feels like a spielberg film because he produced it or like chris columbus or that kind of it's probably written by columbus isn't it but like it doesn't uh, it feels like it's one of those guys does not feel like it and then so 20 years after he made uh superman they get him in to produce the x-men films or the first one at least and then lauren shula donna which was what his wife yeah i think so he was attached um, to X-Men for years, since like the early 90s. So that, that film was, it had a long pre-production. And I think he was attached to it kind of off the back of Superman. So they could say, yeah, it's like a superhero movie and Richard Donner's doing it, like Superman. So that had a long gestation period with him was always attached as director. And I think at some point he was like, I'm not going to make this. You know. it, uh, but it was because Superman and Batman were both uh, Warner Brothers and DC, and obviously um, Marvel were um, uh, X Men. Um, so it was kind of like a different company that he was. It, but it seems so weird that it was ten years between Superman and Batman, and then another ten years between Batman and yeah. X Men. Well, weirdly, the only film that feels that a film you don't really associate with being in the same genre at all but i think at the time it really was was the film that kind of launched off the back of superman was popeye because at the time people didn't talk about superheroes in the same way they were like what else is like you know like a cartoon character. a comic book yeah, yeah. so it's like mm. that so it's like popeye we'll get popeye we, that's finally gonna get going off the back of superman and it's like it wasn't it wasn't those kind of things and batman batman again had a long long gestation period because for a while that was um, Dante. Well, that's, Dante was doing it. Uh, well, there's loads of people that were doing it. And at one point it was Bill Murray as Batman. Mm. And another point it was Sam Raimi was up for directing uh, Batman and they wanted to get Bruce Campbell in as Bruce Wayne. And it's like, why didn't they make that? Yeah. Uh, Sam Hamm had the script, didn't he? And, yeah, there was, um, and there's, there's different versions of the script. One of them is by the guy who was doing writing all the bond movies the sort of early roger moore bond movies and but a lot of the early drafts of it were like if they're doing a batman movie they were basically trying to do an update on the adam west so it wasn't really till the comics kind of went back a bit darker that they went oh no this is how we do batman so because to hollywood adam west was batman so all the Mm. movie adaptations post superman were all like how do we do a kind of very campy Batman film in the seventies? So they were kind of like, or, or and and eighties, I guess. So the idea was to do it like a comedy. Like we'll do it. Oh, when, we'll get Bill Murray in because that's what Batman's like. They're like it's a comedy. But when Batman came out, the TV series was being repeated all the time on mm. TV. So when you were a kid, you don't know that it was made in the sixties. You just think that this is the thing that. So when they made a film, and you go, it's nothing like the. You know, it was like, does it say Blamo on the screen mm. during Tim Burton's Batman? You go, no, it doesn't. What do you mean? Do you know what I mean? It was kind of like, it was mind-bending that the film was different from the TV series. Yeah. And then, it, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, so Richard Donner, uh, amazing career. Contributed loads and loads to cinema. All of his films, um, all of his earlier films not even early films i would say his later films leave something to be desired um but even something like conspiracy theory's got something good about it um and uh yeah he, he died on he died on monday but um he 
uh, I think everyone should watch a few of his films this week um, and just remind, you know, without him, we wouldn't have a lot of stuff now. Hmm. I mean, and also like those Marvel movies are real kind of prototype based on Superman and things. Every, everything since is kind of based on Superman, isn't it? It's amazing that Marvel have learned more from Superman than DC. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just like in terms of structure, how you introduce a character, all this stuff, you know, they did it. They go, oh, well, Iron Man was the blueprint. You go, no, Superman was the blueprint. And then Iron Man, every film after that has kind of done the same sort of, every origin movie since. Yeah. Anyway, this, let me just say this, the Superman movie also that people don't acknowledge is how much it influenced the comics of Superman. And so that once they established the mythology in the movie, the mythology was all over the place before the movie. And as soon as they established it in the movie, they went, oh yeah, that's it. That's how Superman became Superman. That's what happened. It like really yeah. cemented all the kind of the law that was all, all over the place and silly and really made it condensed into this kind of like sort of slick story that all made sense. And Superman was this massive Warner Brothers, big budget, star studded movie where they got proper actors in. And who wrote it? Mario Puzo. Mario Puzo. Or however you said it. <laughs> and, and so one of the biggest influences on Superman was Godfather, really. Yeah. Which yeah. is we'll get the guy that wrote The Godfather in to write uh, Superman and we'll get The Godfather in it, you know. And not only will we get The Godfather in it, but we will fill the film with, you know, character actors and gene hackman is like one of the greatest actors of that time and it's kind of like we'll get gene hackman into you know and it's kind of like all like what have we learned from studio pictures in the past like the godfather it's kind of like we'll go the godfather approach and we'll treat it with the same sort of like reverence as that and then the godfather was kind of a trashy book that they upgraded yeah. and the same as superman they kind of like treated it like it was you know, some sort of brilliant text. Um, and not the funny papers. So, right, we're going to do some fan mail now before we get our uh, we get our guest on. Hello, five-star fan club. Thoroughly enjoyed your interview with TNG legend Marina Sirtis. And I am with you, Nick. ST6 is the best one. I rewatched it all in a row a while back. I rewatched all in a row a while back, and it jumps out as being the most visually striking of the originals, despite the majest budget. Anyway, that discussion reminded me of the novelization of ST, the motion picture, written by Gene Roddenberry based on his pass at the script that. And for reasons that will become obvious. Sometimes I wonder what it is that you're doing while I'm hosting, while I'm hosting our radio show now, or podcast. I sometimes wonder what it is that you are doing. Have one more stab at that, shall we? Yes. Uh, anyway, that discussion reminded me of the novelization of ST, the motion picture written by Gene Roddenberry, based on his past at the script that, for reasons that become obvious, was not used. It is weirdly horny. Notable scenes include one where Mr. Spock is trying to meditate in a viewing chamber thing and keeps getting distracted by other crew members having noisy sex in the adjacent compartments. Best of all is a dilemma faced by Captain Kirk, who decides the only way to communicate with Vijay is by having sex with the Ilya probe. 
uh, but is torn over who should do it? Decker, because of his past emotional connection with Ilya, or Kirk, because he is better at sex. Extraordinary scenes. Cheers, Toby. Is it Ilya? Am I reading it wrong? Uh, I, I read it as Ilya. Um, yeah. Mm, uh, some fruity bits in the novelization. Thanks for sending that in, Toby. Um, uh, we prefer questions because it gives us something to work with, but um, uh, that's a shame. He's basically saying that you listened to the show the other week uh, and you agree with what we said and you, you've read a book. Um, I can't stress this enough, guys. Don't worry about the first f- 55 minutes of the show. We've got that. But when it comes to that middle five minutes before we bring the guest on, that's you. That's over to you. And we can only make that work if you give us the material to springboard off, right? And in the last few weeks, I don't want to end the first half of this week's show with a telling off. Of course I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm the helmster. But, uh, <laughs> oh God. But I'm just going to say, if you don't give us the material that we need in order to, you know, uh, uh, send the first half of the show off into the second half, then we can't do it properly. So please, we're begging you, uh, keep that fan mail coming in, uh, but make it good. Thank you very much. Sorry about that, Nat. I, I know that he agrees with me because he's nodding furiously as I'm saying this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, let's play a song and then let's get our guest on. and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Foo Bar Radio. And we're back! We're back! We're back! We're back live. We're not live. We're pre-recorded on a Wednesday. And uh, we're back live in the studio. We're not live <laughs> pre-recorded on a Wednesday. We're not in the studio. I'm in my office and Nat is in his washroom. We're now joined by, hmm, filmmaker extraordinaire, <laughs> Jamie Adams. Hello, Jamie. How how are you doing? Wow, um, good, <laughs> <laughs> good. Uh, 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 yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, how are you doing? I'm okay. Yeah, not bad. Now this is a bit of a delay. Is the delay the satellite link up from where we are to wherever you are, or is it the delay that you're taking a bit of time on answering? I am in Cardiff. Yeah, so maybe that's. That's weird on Zoom. But, but <laughs> all right, well, right. So currently, you are in. Uh, you're in an editing suite. Yeah, yeah. Directed yeah. or, or editing, presumably, another movie. Hey, that's interesting. There's no delay with you, no. Oh, hello. <laughs> it's a wind up. <laughs> what 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 is the film you're working on currently, Jamie? Uh, it's called Real Love, um, and it's a it's a it's a sham wedding comedy with Sean Clifford and Russell Tovey. Oh, sweet! Mm. Oh, and Nick, oh, yeah. Nick Helm, Nick Helm's in there as well, actually. So, uh, so when did when did when did we record that in January, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the height of the pandemic. We were we were doing that in Margham Park. But that was January, right? We yeah. So, um, and so you're editing that now. How's that looking? This is, this is like real time. This is two people that, so I made, so Love Spreads is out of the cinema now and that 
that we filmed that what well, i keep forgetting what year that we filmed that we filmed that in 2017 or 18 it was it was february 2018 right um and that came that was meant to come out at tribeca last uh march not last march 2020 just as uh and we were like booking our tickets to new york for the tribeca film festival weren't we um and and looking for accommodation so it's going to come out then but it's literally it came out on the 19th so just under a month ago um in america um and that that sort of feels like it's been like a long gestation period is that typical for one of your productions or or what like this is like some kind of job interview um well, it's a, well J- jamie jamie it is it is an interview and it is about your job so <laughs> how about pulling your fucking socks up and uh, answering the fucking questions yeah um so what was your question it- i'm putting i'm just gonna say right right at the top of the, right at the top of the show jamie right um, i'm putting my personal feelings aside right now and i'm gonna try and make the next 50 minutes as fucking professional as i possibly can right so tell us about the gestation period of one of your films because um we filmed it we filmed uh uh love spreads which has uh, uh isaac gonzalez and alia shawkat and that was the film that we made in 2018 and that's yeah. just come out yeah. and you're currently in Cardiff editing a film that we filmed in uh, January this year. Yes. So what's the turnaround process of, of one of your productions really? I mean, it's, it's, normally, it's normally quite swift, but I think that obviously what happened there was, uh, number one, you've got to find the right festival. You can't just, you can't just premiere you know, anywhere. And we were very lucky with Tribeca for them to, to, um, you know, they seemed to respond really well to Love Spreads, which was, which was fantastic. And then, as you said, we were all ready to go. So, so actually, I suppose that is still quite long because that would have been just over like a year and a half. Um, it would have been two, two years from when we filmed it to when it went to, because we filmed it uh, over Valentine's Day in 2018. Yeah, and, and then they get... It would have come out in March 2020. But yeah, but we we knew, you know that you go into a festival about six months before. So I think for, for me, it's like, that's, yeah. So that's why we wait, is because you want to have the right festival to do that. But yeah, I knew six months before that we were going there. So that was, and then the pandemic hit, so we didn't do that. So yeah, so so that it does feel, it does feel like a, a, a while ago. Um, but actually I've been constantly making films since, so, so for me, it's about the making of the film, getting to, to uh, you know, picture lock, as it's called, um, and feeling good about it. And then I move on to coming up with ideas for the next. And so currently you're bringing out, you're, you tend to have a film out a year, right? Going right back to your first one. Yeah, I think there was one year where, <laughs> where we had three out in the same year, um, which won't happen again. Um, but yeah, so it, I mean, literally they're low budget indie movies. So, you know, it's my, it's my craft, it's my job. So I need to keep moving forward and, and, you know, keep making the films. And what kind of budget, when you say low budget indie movie, what kind of, uh, do you know what, I'll tell you what, Jamie, um, 
when normally when we have anyone that works in the industry on um, yeah I, we don't know them personally so you have to sort of like you know pussyfoot around a little bit and and you know be polite and you know try and get out a bit of information but but we've worked with each other since 2018 for, uh, we've done three films yeah two during two during the pandemic and we also did a pilot for a tv series so um can we just sort of like talk to you a little bit about how you got started and then about the process of actually making a film mm -hmm. so um uh, when you talk, when so when you talk about kind of like doing um so well what's the best way to to describe you to the listeners is that you are a filmmaker, you're a director, you're a writer, uh, you're a producer, you uh, help other people make their films, um, and you kind of um, uh, specialise basically in uh, independent improvised uh, movies, don't you? Mm -hmm. um, and you generally manage to attract uh, a pretty decent cast and you, you you kind of give actors an opportunity to do something that um isn't a typical film one of the things that attracts sort of like the bigger names that you get is the opportunity to do something that um is a little bit uh off off the beaten track and you invite them to come along and improvise and uh, not be kind of uh, restricted or constricted with a screenplay, yeah? Yeah, you know, totally that's what it is. I mean, I get asked that quite a lot in terms of casting and in terms of how does that work? And generally people think that I'm friends with somebody who knows somebody and, and that's how that happens. But actually it's quite, it's quite, it's the, quite the usual way really. And, but I think the difference with what I'm offering up is something that they would never get offered, which is, you know, it's an improvised movie. It, it, it shoots quickly. It shoots, uh, you know, generally between five and 15 days. Um, and so for them, they're kind of, I can only, you know, I'm not going to speak for them, but I, what I've heard is, is that they just think it's insane. They're just like, so we're going to make a feature film within, you know, five to 15 days. Normally, regularly, it's six days, and then sometimes it's 10 days. And I think once we've done 15 days. Um, when we, we did one in 2020, just before the pandemic hit, just while the pandemic was hitting, isn't it? We were very lucky to get it wrapped. Yeah, like two weeks and, before. Yeah. And that was a, wasn't that a four-day shoot, or was it a five-day shoot? That, that was, yeah, that was five days. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it, that's what they, they just, and then they see the films. So as, as the films have gone on, so, if, you know, they'll sit down and watch Black Mountain Poets or they'll watch uh, Benny and Jolene in the beginning um, and they'll go, okay, so we do actually end up with a film uh, and they seem to enjoy them enough to, to go, let's, let's, okay, let's go on this journey. Let's, let's uh, be a part of this experience. One of the things that people ask me when um, I say, what I've been up to is they say, what do you mean it's improvised? And it's not, I mean, it is improvised, but it's not so much, um, it's not like from scratch. You don't like invite a bunch of actors and say, well, right, what's this going to be about? <laughs> uh, that's interesting though, isn't it? I quite like that idea. Um, no, no don't do that. Don't do that, Jamie. Do that. It's stress, right. stress, <laughs> stressful enough, just as it is. <laughs> um, no, I mean, literally it's developed 
you know, developed over the first three films, really. We found, I mean, Joe Swanberg and the Duplass brothers and Lynn Shelton and all the, what they like to call the mumblecore uh, generation. They, they got fellow actors together and created movies out of desperation to make films because no one else was giving them the opportunity. And, you know, thankfully, you know, through being so gracious, they were in, in email contact with me and I talked through kind of how I was thinking of making movies and, and you know, what was, what was possible over here. Um, and we, through that, I stumbled across this kind of idea that we could follow the Joe Swanberg type method of, you know, having scenes that we knew we were going to shoot. Um, but at that time, there was only like one line for each scene. Um, and I knew I just wanted to get a bunch of really talented people on the road. So we just, it was like, uh, I think I'm a frustrated drummer in a band, basically. So I was like, how do we get on the road? What's this story? Well, it's just going to be a road movie. Um, it's about music. And through that, came up with Benny and Jolene. So it was essentially two motorhomes full of like, I think it was like seven people in each. Uh, and then like, I think like one or two cars. And we traveled down to London. We traveled up to North Wales, went to McCuncliffe. We came out to South Wales. And I think that was only five days. There was a lot of driving involved. Um, and after the first day, one of the actors was like, we probably shouldn't be filming whilst we're on the road. So, so, we, so we didn't uh, after that. So we did lose quite a bit of time. But we still had a lot of incredible locations and uh, incredible scenes. Um, but it did feel a bit like sketch comedy in terms of this is the location and this is this moment, but it didn't feel very sort of narrative driven. Um, and so for the next one, we just, we made sure that what I had written down for the scenes became, it just progressed. There was more, there was more for the actors and, and in fact, more for the crew. That was the other major thing was that, you know, actors generally are there to, to jump in and, and try and do the best they can with what's in front of them. But crew were getting frustrated because they didn't really have much of an idea of what the scenes were going to be and, and how to prepare for them. So, yeah, with, with A Wonderful Christmas Time, it, it progressed. And then with Black Mountain Poets, it became almost a screenplay, um, but without dialogue. Um, or at least, uh, you know, there'd be some dialogue, but not dialogue that I expected anybody to learn and follow. And that's basically what's been since then. Black Mountain po Poets is basically... it's it's um it's high concepts in terms of what the film is do you yeah. know what i mean you can just you could describe that in like one sentence um so go on i'm not great but, at the one sentence thing no 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 but like so black mountain poets is two uh two criminals go on the run and they hide out at a poetry retreat and every day they're forced to come up with uh, improvised poetry or poetry. Um, and uh, I remember when I saw that, um, I was kind of like, so which part of it is improvised then? Because the poems that the, that the group come out with feel like they, well, they must be scripted, obviously. Um, but they weren't, right? No, they weren't. Um, no, I mean, essentially, have you seen Black Mountain Poets, Nat? No, I haven't seen it. No, no, I haven't seen it. So, uh, yeah, there's quite a, there's, I think there's two or three sort of uh, 
improv poetry moments in it where they have to get up and they have to deliver these poems. And we had uh, three professional poets. Are, are poets professional? Anyway, we had three professional poets there and they were going to be in the film, but we actually figured out pretty soon that they, you could tell which ones were the actors and which ones were the poets. And uh, so what they ended up doing was actually helping uh, the actors with the, with the writing of these poems. And I mean, the first set of poems anyway, it was meant to be like an improv moment at this retreat. So they weren't meant to be fantastic poems. And so everyone pretty much didn't have time to even think. I didn't tell them what was coming. And then I said, okay, this is what's going to happen. And then uh, Roger Evans, um, in his character, asks them one by one to come up and, and uh, you know, deliver a poem about their, their trip, their journey to the retreat. They were amazing. So they, they were some of the best poems. They completely just improvised in the moment. I remember Richard Ellis, who I work with quite a lot, he basically just came up with what happened to him on his journey to the film. So in terms of his car apparently slid a little bit on some, on like a, a wet patch on the road. Uh, it was quite heavy rain getting up to the Black Mountains of Wales. And so, yeah, he used that moment. Um, but he was quite, quite clever. He did it in English and it was only like three lines and then he just repeated it in Welsh. <laughs> and so it felt like you, there was more to it. But yeah, but in, so... So in terms of Black Mountain Poets, um, no, none, none of the... I mean, I think for the last poems, Alice and Dolly went and wrote those. Mm. Um, but for the, the middle poem, in fact, the, the, the receipt poem... The, I mean, I was going to say, that's, that, that is the bit where you go, well, that's got to be scripted, right? No, so, um, so what happened, just very quickly, is that uh, we were shooting the scene and all we knew is, is that this was going to be an, uh, the middle poem moment where what we'd learned about them so far it was they were going to talk about in these poems and Alice had decided to uh, stand in opposition to the rest of the the poets so they were all in a sort of semicircle and she was almost on stage in front of them um, and she in character she was getting frustrated with these with these poets and what they thought was poetry and so she said something about you know I could I could deliver a receipt better than, than your poems. And they say, go on then. And it's at that moment that I go, okay, hold it there. And I go, who's got a receipt? And then somebody came up with this receipt and I was like, okay, this is your poem, Alice, away you go. And we're still filming, you know, we're still turning. I don't really say cut much. And, um, and she just had to <laughs> run with it and just, she'd never read the receipt before. She didn't know what was coming. And, um, and she delivered an incredible moment in the film. I guess that's what improv is, isn't it? It's something happening in the moment that someone is able to kind of leap on and take advantage of something. So, so there's that, which I guess is also what your job is as director. It's your job to step in and say, that's a great idea. Let's run with this. It's guiding, essentially, because what, what's happening in, in front of you is really talented people giving their all to whatever that whim or moment is and i often say at the beginning um when you hear my voice because i say hold it there and i say wind it back um quite a bit and i try and remind them of, of what moment i want by saying a line or something that they've just said um so they at least know where they're going from 
but yeah, I don't try to, and I offer up things, and and that's the point at which I go. Don't, you don't have to. You don't have to do what I've just said. You don't have to go. You know, I, I say something like, "Okay, now start speaking about your uncle," and whilst making a cup of tea, you know, they might. They'll, they'll, they'll hear it. They'll hear it, and they don't have to follow that. Yeah, they like, can. They can um, decide to ignore me. When um, when we were filming, and you said, uh, "Do a Jamaican accent." Yeah, <laughs> and I turned to you and I told you to fuck off. <laughs> your, eye, your eyes, your eyes told me that first, and then, yeah, and, then and, and then I asked you to do it again, and then you told me to fuck off. But yeah, um, yeah, because some, <laughs> but it's all gathering material, and like, in fact, I did that with Dan Clark. We were we were uh, shooting a scene on Wild Honey Pie, and. Dan just wasn't understanding the scene. He didn't get what was what was happening. And he really wanted to talk it through. He really wanted to talk more about what we were doing. And I could see that everyone else was firing. And I was like, if we stop it now and start talking about what's going on here so that Dan's up to speed with everybody else, then we're going to lose the energy of what's going on here. And, um, and so I said, okay, <laughs> Dan, don't worry about any of that. But this time whatever you do say it in a liverpudlian accent <laughs> and and it just it just immediately gives him a whole new energy where he's just like okay i was confused before now i'm absolutely have no idea why i'm doing a liverpudlian accent and i say action and away he goes and it's some of the funniest stuff from dan in the film because he's so confused <laughs> he's just like i don't know why i'm trying a liverpudlian accent <laughs> i don't know where i'm meant to be or what i'm doing and his confusion is is right for the character in that moment and what, what are the economic... I mean, cause it's difficult. In, in this country, you've kind of got... Budgets can seem to go from what would be a big budget in the UK, which is probably a fraction of what big Hollywood movies cost, mm. that go from sort of a kind of medium-budget movie to ultra-low-budget, no-budget movie. But what you're making, I'm always hard to get my, trying to get my head around, like, well, how much would this have cost? And what are the economics of it? And is that, do the, essentially, how much do you have to earn back? Are you working with producers who are funding it? Or is it all, how does it all work? How do you kind of get the money for these films? Uh, yeah, as soon as anybody um, can tell me that, then, that, then I'd know what the magic <laughs> is. Uh, all I do is make sure that I have lots of great ideas, what I consider great. Anyway, Nick doesn't like half of them. But I have um, whatever I consider to be good ideas. And, and I send them, I send out the best sort of three or four to in a, what I call a lookbook, um, which is essentially a story outline. Keep it short. People haven't got time. And uh, just get to the point of why this is a saleable story. Um, and then I say, you know, what I've done. And I say who I imagine will be involved. Um, and what I can make it for. And generally that figure is anywhere from 25,000 to 500,000. Um, and the conversations that go on once somebody likes the idea is then that the budget is based on, you know, what the idea is. So for Songbird, that was quite an easy sort of sell in terms of it's a, a faded Britpop star a uh, female Britpop star um, who doesn't want the 
the good times to end so she goes to university so it felt like a will ferrell kind of film in terms of it's quite a high concept thing and mm -hmm. really needed 10 million pound to pull it off you know to that extent um so i said it's an indie version of that with kobe smulders in the will ferrell role and you know jessica hines in support and yeah, I mean, Richard Ellis is back and, and yeah, it's just, there's just, it, it, it's an incredible, I mean, Daisy Haggard was in that film as well. There's it's incredible cast and they do their, they do, they run the numbers. They go, what do we think? If this film is just awful, then we'll still be able to sell it on the poster and the people involved. So what can we, what, what do you reckon we can get for that? And then they'll come back to me with a figure and I'll say whether or not I can do it for that. Right. I guess 20, yeah. 2020 is kind of a, we don't know what's happening with films now. But in terms of that, how are they thinking of selling it? Is it kind of that? You can't ever second guess any of that. Right. No, there's, no, there's no knowing about who these people are going to be in the end. Like you can imagine some people you're going to send these things to and go, oh, they've, they've, you know, like the Fisherman's Friends people at the moment, for example, they probably get sent a ton of things because they made millions of pounds with, with that film. Right. Um, you know, and, and there's no knowing if one of those producers, I think there's three or four in that film, um, they might pick up a, the, on an idea that they, they get sent out of the hundreds that probably get sent their way. And they'll go, oh, you know what? I really wanted to work with that actor before. Um, and they'll do it for that reason. Or they'll do it for oh, you know, it, it's a high concept, that will sell on its own, you know. Um, and then they'll just pick, also, you know, you, you never know. I've, I, I think for all my films, only the first three did I really know who's going to fund them. Right. Out of the others, I've just looked around, you know, and just kind of been smart with who, I'm not being arrogant, but you've got to be smart in terms of you can't just send it out to, you know, uh, the bond producers or whoever it is you have to think who's going to be interested uh to go on this kind of journey what would they get out of it because that's all anybody is really looking for if they're going to spend even 30 40 thousand pound is a hell of a lot of money so like what are they going to get out of it you know and you know at that level they should anything up to 250,000 they should get their money back if the idea is good mm. and if the if the if the main cast involved you know are popular then that it shouldn't be too much of a and then it just comes down to scheduling then it can comes down to whether or not they've got time to do it so there are plenty of people out there with money uh, plenty of indie, indie financiers with money and but it comes down to like have they already got loads on on their slate have they already got something like what you're pitching, you know. And the other thing with my films is that they can go really quickly. So if I'm if I'm sending this out in in say April, I can shoot it in June or July. So that that doesn't normally happen. It normally takes at least you know six months to a year, even on a very low budget thing, before something turns around into production. And in those times, oh, no, oh. oh sorry. But just on all of, all of the projects that I've worked on, you feel like they've been um, put together in very different ways. So we've done three films and one TV. Was it a pilot for BBC yeah. Wales? Yeah. And so the BBC Wales one was kind of like, obviously you, I don't know, how much money did you get for that? Oh, was titching. That was really small because it wasn't meant to be for broadcast. That was meant to be a... Uh, 
sort of web series idea, really. They were trying to, uh, BBC Wells were trying to get their sort of people to go onto their, onto their website, the iPlayer for Wales, I can't remember what it's called. But it's not the normal, it's not the general iPlayer, it's something to do with Wales. Um, and so, yeah, God, I mean, literally we only had like, I mean, it was low. I think it was like seven grand for two of them. But it was very, very low. And I was, I, they were meant, to, and for that reason, that they were then meant to uh, be picked up for a pilot for broadcast. But instead, because they saw what we did was, they really thought it was, you know, broadcastable, um, that they, I said, fine, yeah, broadcast it. So, what? Well, mm. Well, I know that from working with BBC on something like Uncle, when we did the first series of that, they were like, hey, that's great. And, and you know, I think everyone puts in a little bit, on a small budget, everyone puts in a little bit of extra work, like the art department and the costumes, and everyone really wants it to work well. And I think I had to do, I got paid per song on Uncle. And so um, they wanted um six songs but they could only afford four songs and i said well i'll do a fifth song for free i think it was the last series so i was like writing stuff for free because it would make more sense to have a song there mm. than it would to not and i didn't want money to be the thing but what tends to happen is when once you prove how much work you can do, do on no money because you go i think as an artist you go look at what we did with no money yeah if you give us some money we could do it even better and their mentality is, well, you did a really good job with no money. Let's see how you can, let's see how you can do with less money. And then you mm. go, oh, all right. And so the, the opposite yeah. tends to happen. Well, no, I mean, that was the way this all started, though, is that um, I found out that Le Duncan Scorsese, which is the Shea Meadows film, which I really love, um, I know that was made for 50000 And then somebody told me that, of course, what's on screen didn't cost 50,000 because Shane and Paddy need to be paid um, for their time. And I think Olivia Coleman was in it and so on. So I, I figured out that it probably could have, cause that was shot over five days. I was like, that probably could have been made for 20 to 25,000. If you call in a lot of favors in post-production. Um, and then I remembered El Mariachi and Robert Rodriguez making El Mariachi as, as a- yeah, but it was like a, look what I can do for that amount of money and then give me the actual budget now so we can go and make it better. So I thought with Benny and Jolene, um, <laughs> which was actually called Jolene, the indie folk star movie, which I thought was quite a funny title. <laughs> um, uh, we thought that we'd show somebody that and then they'd go, well, this is kind of cool. Do you want a, a decent budget to go make it, you know, over 24 days, which is your ideal or has been told over the years, your ideal indie sort of uh, schedule. Um, and they didn't do that. Instead, I found myself, Verve Pictures picked it up to distribute it. Um, and I found myself on the stage at NFT One, sold out at Loco Film Festival. And I was there just going, this feels odd. This wasn't meant to be my first film. It wasn't meant to be one that I know is compromised in so many ways, but I felt grateful, but I was also like, this is, it doesn't make any sense to me that this is what's, and people paid like £16 a ticket. I, I felt like a phone. <laughs> I felt like an imposter. I was like, this is not meant to be the debut film. But, you know, it, it did kick off then what I understood to be this process of 
I'm a working class lad from, you know, my parents were like uh, pub landlords. So, and I still live in Wales with my, my family and my three children. So, you know, for me to be there um, on that stage with a film that I'd made, I was like, well, that's got to be what I always hoped would happen, isn't it? So I, I, re I realised that there is no one way, which is obviously what film school teaches you. There's a way of becoming a filmmaker. There's, you know, you wait in line at the BFI until they say that they're ready. Um, that you can, there are other ways. And then for me, there had to be a, another way. And that's what I would just continued to, to do. And that's it. You've just kind of, you, is that the best advice you could give is to just do it? Mm, it depends completely on who you are and what your end goal is. Um, you know. So you seem to understand that world in a way that when you're talking about it, I guess there is a world to know about, right? So if you're mm. like, so when you're talking about distributors and who you send it to, you have, it, you, you know, your first one was 2014. So you guess you've had seven years now of kind of feeling out the business and I guess knowing producers or distributors that you can go, I'll approach them. Is that part of it? Just knowing the world and who exists yeah. in it? Yeah, but I, I mean, I was like 15 when I started making short films and, you know, from, I didn't realise I had OCD at the time, but I was making lists every day of like who the people are that are making films in Britain specifically. Mm. Um, and joining the dots of like, well, who works with who and why is that happening and who's, who's involved in funding them? So it's, it's years of research to get right. to the point to get to the point of being able to call in the favors on Benny and Jolene. I mean, I did a, a web series before that. Um, and I was assistant editor with some great editors on some, you know, I did state of play with Justine Wright um, over here, the part that they did over here and the producers that were in that room. And then, I mean, it's Kevin McDonald was in that room. And so it's just overhearing all these, I mean, Barry Mendel did, God Help the Girl, and Barry Mendel produces Judd Apatow films. And so I was up in Scotland um, kind of working as an assistant editor. And in the cutting room, you're, you're always able to ask questions. You're always, there's always time to be able to talk to the, They're not as pressured in that environment. And he watched a few of my short films and gave me the confidence to take it to the next level and make a, a low-budget feature. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, there's all of... Yeah, it's never an overnight thing, right? It's like, it's a long, long time of just a lot of research and a lot of just, you know, it's the apprenticeship of taking note on on how the world works, how that world works in specifically. That's fascinating. And um, so how, how do you live? Like, is it, because I guess that's the thing about, you're not going to have like... Um, you're not going to be ultra rich from doing this, but is it also that you're mixing kind of making your own movies with sort of more commercial work that you do alongside it? No. Um, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, a couple of years ago, I was asked if I wanted to do certain television and uh, when the children were younger, it was easier for me to say no I've done a couple of pilots. I did the uh, Tim Renko pilot, which I really enjoyed. Right. And I didn't um, didn't want to do the series um, when I heard how, where they were taking it. 
apparently our pilot, um, which was the only one that got picked up that year, was too filmic, um, which I, I never understand that kind of terminology, <laughs> especially when you look at what's happening now with television. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've done a few of those and, and you know, I, I like second unit directing on television and I could, you know, if it was something that I felt like, for example, uh, Love, the show um, with Gillian Jacobs on Netflix, that kind of show I could, I, uh, that, you know, if I, was, if I was asked if I wanted to direct that, I'd be like, yes, because I could see how it would be something that I would have written or that I would have, mm. you know, generated in some respects. So anything that is linked to me that I'm in, I am interested in, but I am, a, I'm old. <laughs> I'm a traditionalist in lots of ways. And I love the idea that if you're a filmmaker, you're a filmmaker and that's what you are. And that's what I've been doing. And as long as I can keep that going, then I'm, I'm happy with that. But no, in terms of, I live, you know, in a terraced house in, in a small coastal town in South Wales with my three children, and my wife, and you know, we're, we're, we're renters, we, we can't buy anything, um, but we're invested as a family, uh, well, the kids don't have a choice, <laughs> my wife does, um, in, in me uh, expressing myself in this way and continuing along this path. Um, and we've only come close once over the years to, to it being a case of, okay, well, you now have to choose to be a lecturer at a university or try and carry on and it's it literally came down to weeks you know where i was i'd applied um for some of this was about five years ago and then i then i got the money to make another film so so yeah it's it's hair raising it's certainly not great for the heart um <laughs> in terms of when you're looking for a project to take off but once it is taking off then of course it's the it's the best thing for for the type of person that i am and um, so some of the, some of the, am I right in thinking that some of the projects, even that we've done, um, some of them come from you with the story and you've gone, I want to tell this story and this is the best way to tell the story. And some of them have come from uh, there being money available and you going, right, there's money, we can make a film. What, what are the components that we've got at hand to make the film and what's it going to be about? So sometimes it's story, story to screen and sometimes it's availability and finance available and then you fill that requirement, yeah? Um, most of the time... Uh, yeah, most, most of the time it's ideas first and then, you know, if a financier is interested in... I mean, I can't, again, speak for them, but what I imagine they do is they go... Well, we can make this very quickly with these people involved, which means we can already assume that we're going to be able to get this amount of money back and more. Um, and it would be a great journey to go on. Um, maybe, maybe because they think about working with me again, or which has happened, or maybe it's about generally it's about the actors involved and about what they would like, how they would like to get to know them for other projects. Um, but mostly it's been that I think only once, once has it been the money's there. What am I going to do now? And I think that was love spreads actually, because I had a, a situation with a financier where 
you know, as long as I, I think I had to make something like three films a year, but I could produce, you know, they didn't want to be directed by me. They could be produced as well by me. And yeah, interestingly, Love Spreads was an amalgamation of about four or five ideas I've had since university um, that no one will finance. No one will finance that story about a girl group who are struggling to uh, write their second album. That's, that's not a story that, you know, they're going to be able to type into a computer and they're going to say, oh, yeah, this is going to earn loads of money. Um, so that money already existed and, and they, they wanted, they were, were, as soon as they knew what cast was going to be involved, they were like, that's fine. Um, but that was, that was a time where the money existed before. And I think that's why I was quite adventurous uh, with, it's not adventurous, is it? But I was quite sort of, well, this is the one time I don't have to think of a, a high concept or think of a, uh, the story has to be likable even. It's like, what is it that I want to say right now? And mm-hmm. I, was, I was quite blocked. I was quite frustrated. And, um, and so I was able to tell the solipsistic story about an artist who can't write, um, which turned out actually <laughs> to be one of my most personal films and, and one that people have really connected with um in america anyway where it's come out so well with so with love spreads that's that's what we met on so the way that i got um i got brought onto that was i guess we've got mutual friends um but you messaged me on facebook and you said that you had seen and this is what won me over was that um you didn't even mention uncle you said that you'd seen you'd seen my short film elephant and you yeah. said, would you, would you like to do this thing? And then I was like, okay, what is it? And so I watched Black Mountain Poets. And then I got in contact with Alice Lowe and Brett Goldstein, because they'd worked with you in the past. I don't think I got in contact with Daisy. Maybe I texted Daisy. And uh, I said, what's it like working with Jamie? And everyone said... You don't have to say. You don't have to go into what they said if you don't Oh, uh, yeah. They, I, I will. No, they, I, won't, I, won't, I won't go into like, the real nasty stuff. But, um, <laughs> you vetted me said, and then... Right, yeah. I, I asked because it was sort of like... Um, oh, I understand. It's like, hey, do you want to be in a movie? And you go, yeah. Do you want to be in an improvised movie? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, and I was like, "What's it like?" And they all said, "Boy, it's mental." And yeah. what you what you essentially have to do. I think Brett was the best at describing it. Um, Alice, or maybe Alice. Alice was just like, "You have to just kind of go along with it." Brett was like, "You'll resist it. You'll fight against it, but eventually, you just need to give in and let Jamie be in control and just let go of like all of your uh, ego and your preconceived ideas of what it is. So when I agreed, then you sent over a scriptment, um, which I've learned since is a, is a term that no one else uses. <laughs> I say, I say in meetings, well, I say in meetings, we'll do a scriptment. And people go, what's the scriptment? And then they'll go, that's an amazing idea. And you go, yeah, 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 it's pretty cool, right? And I'm pleased, because like, I was just thinking, what's the scriptment? That's yeah. scriptment, good. It's, it's a cross between a treatment, where you basically do a blow-by-blow blow of what the film's about, and a script where... And Jamie wrote, I think it was about 50 pages. And mm. it's a 50-page scriptment where it basically takes you character by character, scene by scene, to the entire film. And every so often, if there's an important bit of dialogue in there, 
then he, he'll he'll write out but it'll be like five lines or something in the middle of a page um and so i read it and i was like okay right and who else and i googled everyone else that was in it i was like yeah okay cool i'd love to do this and then you go out there and then on day one my character was a very specific character in in love spreads and in day one scene one action and because of the way it was uh you know improvised it became clear that <laughs> I couldn't do the character that I'd been hired to do because uh, um, uh, because the way I was going to do it was kind of like dictated to by the way other people were uh, treating my character. Other characters were treating my character, and it was just like, well, I can't do it that way. Um, so you so so even with something that had a fifty, what's a it's a ninety-minute film, and so. You really want a 90, if it was a script, it would be a 90 page script. We had a 50 page scriptment. And, um, and so even fundamentally in terms of the character that I'd signed on to play, as soon as I got there, you go, right, if we stick to this scriptment, we've got a film. But on the very first scene, it was like, that was thrown out the window. And you go, all oh, right. So it's not, a, it's not completely improvised and there is a plan but even with a plan that was pretty detailed, you know, it was, it was over half of what, it was over half the page numbers that you need to do. It's like, generally it's a page a minute. And um, so it was like 50, 50 pages ago, that's pretty good. Um, but even with something that was as detailed as that, it was kind of like, oh, right, it, it, can, it can all change. You know, there was kind of yeah. like a lot of like, um, uh, weaving in and out, of uh, of kind of like what you had planned, you know, we bought you bought on actors that weren't in the original uh, in the original uh, scripts in the original mm. document to sort of like um, uh, take other characters in different directions and to give people kind of like backstory and things like that. Yeah, so keep it fresh. You know, it's, about, so it's it was the, all about yeah. fresh. So there's a plan, and you know, That's... kind of what the film the film's going to make. But then, yeah. if you but but if a scene turns out differently as you're doing it, well, when we did um, what was sorry, what's the one that you're editing now? Uh, Real love. Real love, yeah. That was one thing, wasn't it? That was that was a. It was basically it was a film about a wedding reception. It was. Um, it was. They were going to be locked in. You're going to be locked in for the weekend. It, so it was a film about a bunch of people that go to a wedding, including me and Richard Herring. Uh, and uh, uh, we have the wedding, and then at the end of the wedding, we get locked into the church, and then uh, the film is about all of the guests of this wedding that are trapped in this place, and and it's a romantic comedy. And then on day one, you realise <laughs> you realise that you didn't want to make that film, so you, so you rewrote it on the first night, and then we all yeah. turned up. We all turned up and we were like, oh, right, we're extras. We kind of like, we, we're, we're, um, we're colours on your palette. And if you need to use this that day, you'll go, oh, we need a bit of purple. So we'll, we'll bring, yeah. you know, we'll No, but what happened there, there, what happened there was, is the, the, the grandiose ideas that, you know, we have when you're just in a room on your own and you're going, this is what's going to happen and that'll be great. And then you get there and you, you remind yourself, oh, actually, 
it takes a long time to to you know get what you need from the improv let alone be able to cover something like 11 characters that we had <laughs> for that film it was always a bit kind of i think i just really wanted to be around some really cool people for a bit because the pandemic had annoyed me whoa, 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 whoa. and me I was and, there. <laughs> <laughs> and i was like you know but then i so yeah i, I started to we rushed the wedding so much that when I, because, you know, my DOP is like, Jamie, I can't move any quicker than I am. And I was like, we've only covered about four people in that wedding and not very well. So I was like, well, we have to redo the wedding. And then I was like, we just need to make this easier on ourselves and make it about the build up to the wedding and then have the wedding and then have a bit of the reception. So within the five days, we actually had a much more manageable story to tell rather than you know within within one day within one day you had a much more manageable story you know on yeah, day so one it, on yeah. day one it was like we were all in we're all in the wedding and we're filming a wedding and then on day two we'll film something else but then you went away thought about it and on day two we go, well, we're filming that wedding again you go, <laughs> we kind of nailed it yesterday right and then you kind of like go all oh, right but i I'm, I'm not saying this is a negative i'm saying this is no, no. like it's great to be able to get the money together, to get a cast together, to have people there that are there in support of what you want to do. Um, and we all have a plan, but it's also great to be able to throw that plan out. Not great for me, obviously, I spent a lot of sitting around. <laughs> but then I, made, I've, I made some friends for life in that green room. It was great. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, sure. But, um, but, but, <laughs> But you know, I mean, it's great to be able to sort of like go, this is the plan, and then you know, take a tangent and go, actually, we're going to make it about this now. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, the with Love Spreads was interesting because it's that was one of those moments where uh, characters were doing things that I didn't expect, and so you can't say no, you're there to guide. You're not, you're not, you're not there to dictate. Otherwise just write the screenplay. So, you know, we, we, we even got to a point where I didn't even look at the scriptment from about day three or four. That was a 10 day shoot. Um, on day three and four, I just basically started writing the scenes that we were going to do the next day, the night before. So it became very driven, <laughs> it became very driven by what um, had happened that day and, and what I needed to move things forward the next day. Um, so yeah, so it can, I mean, sometimes like Black Mountain Poets, that didn't veer off the scriptment very much. Um, and then there's other times like uh, Love Spreads where, yeah, it, it, it becomes something very different. But we found something really beautiful with the ending of, of Love Spreads. I'm really glad audiences have picked up on that and feel that as well. I mean, that wasn't at all, you know, your character wasn't at all, that wasn't his arc. And then it developed and became what it was. And, and it's really, you know, it's really affecting actually. So yeah, I'm really I think, pleased. But I think, I, but I, real love changed very dramatically from what we were, you know, hoodwinked into signing up for to what it ended up becoming but yeah. um but love spreads i think um i think 
overall, it was the film that we all sort of signed up for. But I think specifics like characters and motivation, that changed daily. And the other thing was that it was a 10-day shoot, wasn't it? But we were there for 11 days because we had one day off in the middle, right? Yeah. In yeah. my head, I'm always like, it was 11 days, but it was actually 10. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and we got there the day before, so maybe it's 12. <laughs> um, oh, why is it? Why do you always work with comedians? I ask myself that question all the time. Because <laughs> um, uh, they're, they're more depressed than me. Maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's it. Um, no, in, in honesty, they're just the most smart uh, and able people to come up with ingenious new directions for scenes in the moment. I mean, I guess stand-up is the most terrifying thing. I've never done it, never will do it. Um, I'm very shy. Uh, so the seeing these... Yeah, you know, like Nick, yeah, yeah, just why are they getting up there? Why are they doing that to themselves? Um, I love that kind of person. They're throwing themselves in at the deep end. And, you know, if they survive, then, then they get to continue. And, uh, and they're not afraid of failing. And I, and I think that that's why comedians are brilliant in this environment, because, you know, they kind of show actors, because I mix, you know, you mix the actors with the, with the comedians. And in fact, they crossover a lot of the time as well but it basically puts everyone at ease because then as soon as you see someone i mean like richard ellis i think he's as much of a comedian as he is an actor he won't like me for saying that but that's how i view him and so he will just try anything like you know we'll, we'll just mention something and he'll just go with it and if it works it works if it doesn't it's like okay well let's do something else and it's not like it, there's no embarrassment or you know there's no there's it, nowhere to hide for a kickoff so you might as well just try something and if it doesn't work we can just go again it's not theater that's one of the things when you're when you're working with um uh, with actors as well it's kind of like you've got to stop resisting the process and you have to just do it and um it's difficult yeah and i, I think i think that's also most of my films are comedies now and and you know another thing is is that comedians are great writers uh, and so you surround yourself with, you know, very talented comics who've got that courage um, to just throw themselves into something. Um, but as Nick, you know, kind of pointed or alluded to earlier, you know, it's also the comics that will say no to something as well, rather than, you know, actors are trained to say yes to, right. to you know, and so, so comics would just, they have a very distinct, very quick, ability they have to think on their feet i imagine being on that stage in that sort of environment um i hate talking about something i don't really know about but i guess that's what it is and so they're they're, they're just much and, and also knowing that we are moving a narrative forward here so not just being funny for the sake of it of also thinking well also i'm in this doing this and then we need to go there um and so yeah they're just they're just very smart people and very well, it's good it's a good mix as well. You, you, we've got to wrap up soon, but it's, um, it's a good mix because you, you, what you basically have is you have like people like Richard came on Love Spreads and I'd never done it before. And so you've got more experienced people that are guiding other people on your projects and saying, well, it's always like this, which puts yeah. you at ease. There's also comedians working with actors, actors working with comedians. So the comedians are acting more and the actors are being sort of like led down a path to be more funny. And so everyone sort of compliments each other on one of those sets. Hey, yeah, it's, it's really the, great. That's the ideal. 
it's really great what you're doing and um and i've enjoyed working with you so far Thanks, so far um, <laughs> we've got to we've got to uh wrap up we've got so now we've got three minutes okay, can you do well, this yeah we can do it we can do we've it got, Right, we've got three minutes. So, Jamie, unfortunately, I've got a hand over to Nathaniel now, and we're going to play the internationally world-famous game, Better or Worse. Now, Jamie, in this game, you have to say whether the next person is better or worse to score points, but using my opinion to do so. So, beginning with... Again, Vincent three Price. minutes. You've got three minutes now. Vincent Price. Is Adam West better or worse than Vincent Price, based on my opinion? Uh, better. I think he might be better. Phil Collins, better or worse than Adam West? <laughs> worse. Better. Worse. Come on. Peter Sellers, down. better or worse than Phil Collins? Better. Worse. Better. Did on purpose. Tony Curtis, better or worse than Peter Sellers? Better. Worse. Yeah, I'm doing well. Orson Welles, better or worse than Tony Curtis? <laughs> uh, better. 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 Roy Scheider, better or worse than Orson Welles? Better. Worse. I think worse. Richard Attenborough, better or worse than Roy Scheider? Better. Worse. Better. Gene Hackman, better or worse than Richard Attenborough? Better. Better. Robin Williams, better or worse than Gene Hackman? Worse. <laughs> worse. Worse. Bono, better or worse than Robin Williams? Worse. 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 What's the score? Six. You got six. You got a surprisingly high six there, Jamie. Because <laughs> fucking hell, I thought that was atrocious. Um, <laughs> you, got, you got a six, which is good. Uh, it means that you're not quite as good as Dane Baptiste, Marina Certis with nine, Carl Gas. Uh, you're as good as Carl Gas with six, and you're better than Sarah Gibbs with five. Uh, great, uh, yeah, Jamie. Um, lo lovely. Thank you for coming Thank on. Thank you for the coming show. on, Jamie. Uh, you're welcome back here anytime. Welcome to the clubhouse. That's a goodbye from me. And a goodbye from me. Thank you, Jamie. No and problem. And Jamie, it's a goodbye from... From me in Cardiff. Yeah, great. Um, <laughs> so uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, look after yourself. We're nearly out of it. And um, uh, and well done, England, for winning. Uh, commiserations to England for losing. It's a pre-record. Um, great. I'll see you. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.